You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be here with you today. I want to welcome everybody here, all of you who are visiting, maybe to see either somebody get baptized or the babies being, children, I should say, being dedicated today, or maybe you're at home watching at home online. We want to welcome you also. We're really glad that you are here with us today. As Brett already told you, this is just kind of a one-week standalone message because we thought this would be a really, really good time for us to just stop and remember who the king really is. I literally could finish this sermon in about five minutes, but don't worry, I won't, so I don't want anybody being stressed about getting out of here early today. This is a really simple message, but I want to show it to you in scripture. I feel like one of the burdens of being a pastor is helping you not just know what the Bible says, but helping you to read it so that you can understand how to read it for yourself. Because if I ever go crazy and go off track on scripture, I want you to be the ones to sit there and go, you know what our pastor said this week didn't sound right. Something sounded off because I taught you so well how to read the Bible for yourself that you could go home and read it for yourself and understand it for yourself. That's my goal. So that's what we're gonna do. I could just tell you what it is real quick, but we're gonna walk through it today. But I was watching TV yesterday. I was watching college football. Anybody here love college football? Go ahead and give me a clap. Yeah. Anybody? Okay, like few of you. All right, all right. Maybe if you were a Buckeye fan, it'd be easier to watch football too. I don't know. But anyway, that wasn't as funny as I'd hoped, was it? Some of y'all just want to walk out right now. But I was watching it, and normally at this time of the year, there are all kinds of commercials on TV that are terrifying. I'm literally throughout, I have a, right now, I have a, uh, I just turned 10-year-old, I have an 11-year-old, and I have a 6-year-old, and uh, literally, this time of the year, I'm always like, oh, oh, pause that, oh, turn that TV up, oh, hey, kids, look over there, because there's always like, slash them, hack them, whatever kind of commercials coming on TV, and they're scary, and they create and plant thoughts in my kids' heads, and what I have found is this year, I think because there's no new movies coming out, that the commercials actually got scarier, and worse, because they weren't about Halloween stuff this year. They're about the election. And my kids, every other commercial is about this candidate or that candidate or this issue or that issue. My kids are constantly going, Daddy, what's that? Daddy, why are they saying that? Daddy, who's that person? And then I get five seconds into my answer and they're bored, as any of us are by now. And they are tuned out. And I actually think we are living in a culture that is inundated with messages, especially right now, political messages that are just overwhelming us. Is anybody tired of texts and pop-ups and commercials? Can we just say yes? Thank you, Jesus. Whatever happens on Tuesday, it's over, right? Like that part of it, that part of it is over. But there is another part of it, right? I was in a meeting recently, and uh, we were talking about the potentiality that one party could own all three, the, the, the presidency, the House, and the Senate. And then there was like this conversation of anxiety that came up over the next few moments as somebody floated that idea out there. And the thing is, like when it comes to politics, there is this underlying angst, is it there? Whoever you either voted for or will vote for, and by the way, let me just say, in case I don't say anywhere else, please vote. Like, do your best. Like, I get it. They're long lines, right? Try to vote. Like, it's one of the blessings of being an American citizen. But whoever you vote for, if your candidate doesn't win, are you stressed about that? Are you anxious about that? Does it cause you distress? If you're in a place and somebody mentions that even that idea, does that make you upset? Does it make you angry? Does it make you want to argue? Does it make you lose control of yourself? Do you find yourself fighting with people that you love because they don't see the world the way that you do? If so, this message is hopefully just for you. 
So if you don't know much about Bible history, let me take you on a quick journey that leads us to this conversation today. So God created all of the world, as we talked about over the last month, and he made two people, Adam and Eve. And the goal is they would rule and reign on his earth. Something you should take note of today is that God desires to rule and reign through human beings. So we often see God at work in the world. You will see God at work in your life, but he doesn't actually just physically show up and say, hey, I'm God, I'm doing this. You recognize the activity of God the closer you get to the heart of God because God has always desired to rule and to reign through human beings. So he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, work the earth. They name the earth. He gives them control over the earth. He gives them authority over the earth. And that's what they're supposed to do. And it doesn't go take long about chapter three and everything goes sideways. And all of a sudden, by the time we get to chapter six in Genesis, we see that the rulers and the leaders on the earth are abusing their power and they're oppressing people. And that pattern continues from Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation, both in the physical and in the spiritual world. So God decides that he's gonna birth the people. And he comes to a man named Abraham, and he says, one day, Abraham, even though you're much older, you're going to be the father of many nations. And that becomes true. And hundreds of years later, 430 or so years later, God raises up a man named Moses to take this massive nation of people called the Israelites out of Egypt and into freedom. Now, this journey is fascinating. The path is uh, so helpful to understand, because as God births a people, he doesn't put over them a king. He doesn't, because God intended to be the king over Israel. But as we get into the book of Judges, and it's a phenomenal book, what we see is the enemies of God's people raise up and make life difficult and oppress the people, and the people get further and further from God, so God raises up a judge, and the judge does something to kind of set things right, but with each chapter and each judge, the people of Israel get further and further and further down this rabbit hole away from God. So by the time we get to the end of Judges, even though God has raised up another judge, the distance between them and God is so great. And the people start to beg God for a king. And they say, we need a king. And God says, you don't need a king. I'm your king. The last judge is a guy named Samuel. That's where we get those two books in the Bible, First and Second Samuel. He's the last judge. But Samuel one day is talking with God and he begins to weep because God says the people want a king. We're gonna give him a king. And Samuel starts to cry. He's like, why does everybody hate me? It's kind of how it goes. And God says, take a deep breath, Samuel. It's not you they hate, it's me. Let that sink in for a minute. So God says to Samuel, we're gonna choose a king. And they go and they pick a man who's taller than everybody else. He's a foot taller than everybody else. That's like everybody I come in contact with. They're like, wow, we didn't know you were so. <laughs> Just to be clear, if you're watching at home online, somebody said, yeah, you're really big on screen. Yeah, I know. I'm a little disappointing in person, but we'll leave it at that for now. I'm like six, eight on that bad boy, right? <laughs> anyway, so God raises up this man and he looks the part but he doesn't act the part. In fact, in the early stages, the guy's name is Saul. In the early stages of Saul's life, he's hiding literally behind luggage at his own coronation. Like, this guy doesn't look the part, but God has always taken the broken things of this world and trying to make something great out of them. But there always has to be a partnership between the person and God. 
So what we see in Saul's life is it's not real long into a story. He has some successes, but his successes are almost always mired in failure. His first success, if you read the text and you don't read it deep, his first success is actually not a success at all. God has told him very clearly what to do, and he doesn't do it. He attacks the wrong people group. But even in his attack, he, God gives him a success. So even when he doesn't do it exactly what God asked, God gave him success. But over time, his disobedience to the Lord becomes too much. To where finally God takes the kingdom away from that man and he gives it to another man, a man that God says would be a man after his own heart. And his name is David. Now, when God finds David, David is a shepherd boy. We don't know exactly how old, 13, 15, 17, probably in that range. Yeah, he's a boy. And even in that day, thousands of years ago, he was still a boy. And he was the youngest of all of his brothers. And so God sends Samuel, that judge, that last judge, over to David's house to anoint him as king. But when he gets there, David's oldest brother is there, and he looks the part. And Samuel thinks in his own heart, surely this is a man God's going to anoint. But each of David's brothers go before Samuel, and God says, nope, not him, not him, not him. They get through all the brothers, and, and Samuel's going, aren't there any others? Like, is there anybody else? Like, God told me to come here, but then these guys are it. And finally, David's daddy goes, well, there's one guy, but he's, he's just a little ruddy guy. That's literally what it says. And ruddy means something like, I don't know, reddish. So he just doesn't look the part. And so God finally has David brought out of the house. Everybody's just sitting around. They're waiting to eat dinner. They're waiting to find out what the big news is. The, the prophet, the judge Samuel is here. Like, this is a big deal. David comes in and God whispers, that's him. That's the one. See, what we don't fully realize is when David was out in the wilderness, God was doing something in David's heart. God was transforming David into a man after his own heart. David learned some lessons in the loneliness of the wilderness that he couldn't have learned in the uh, pomp and circumstance in the comfort of a kingdom. David learned how to protect his sheep. He tells stories that when he was out in the fields and lions and tigers and bears would come to attack. Okay, I added a few in there, but... When things would come to attack the sheep, David would go and find himself empowered by God with his bare hands to defeat the animals. How? Because God was already forming in him a faith that would go deep into his trust, into who God is and what God was doing in the world. And that would serve him good. Who could have understood in that moment when Samuel pulled out the oil and poured it over David's head and it dripped down over his face and body? By the way, this was classic in the Old Testament to signify that a man had been made king. He was what we call anointed. And the anointing was the process whereby it would signify to everybody. But this is a private ceremony in the outskirts of Bethlehem, in the middle of nowhere, whereby this young boy would be made a king. And what would that mean? Throughout David's life, he would move into closer to this guy named Saul. The next very story we see, you've probably heard of it, is David and Goliath. And David is seen showing to take some food to his brothers who were at war, except for nobody's really at war. You've got the Philistines on one side, you've got the Israelites on the other side, and you've got this massive man. The Bible records he's roughly nine feet tall. He's a massive man standing in the field between them saying, why don't you send down your best? We'll just have my best, our best, go against your best, winner takes all. Well, the Israelites are standing on the hill thinking, I, um, you want to go? I'm going. You going? I'm not going. You going? And where is the king? He's in his tent going, uh, what's the next step here, guys? We got the high ground. Let's not give up the high ground. I saw Star Wars. This isn't going to go well. 
We gotta figure out, some of you are like, what's that have to do with this? Forget it. Anyway, we gotta figure out how to win this war. David shows up with the food, and he's like, hey, what's going on, guys? And the brothers are like, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, who's that guy? And why is he yelling curses at God's people? And all of a sudden, we hear the curses. And David's like, I'll go. And everybody starts to make fun of him. Now, we don't know exactly how old he is at this point. Maybe he's progressed to 17 or 18, but he's still young. He's not even fit for war. He's the guy who takes care of the sheep. He's just a ruddy little guy. Him's just a little guy. And he goes into Saul's tent. And Saul's like, oh, okay, so here, take my armor. But they put it on him, and it's like, do you remember when you were a kid, you put on your dad's suit? And it's draping off of him, and it's too big, and it doesn't work. David's like, this isn't going to work. And Saul's like, yeah, it's not going to work. And so David goes down, he grabs a few stones, and he starts running down the hill like a wild man, swinging these stones around. I remember out when he was taking care of the sheep, he'd learned to be a master of the sling. I've always thought it fascinating, and with all of David's faith, he still took five stones. <laughs> just in case. God wasn't worth the, with the first one. But you know what? He's learning just like the rest of us. And he hits him, and he knocks him out, he kills him. And people start to sing these songs about David. David kills his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. And it starts to sit in Saul's heart. So God removes the kingdom from Saul because he grows increasingly bitter and increasingly disobedient to God. And God eventually, over time, he takes David into the wilderness where David runs and hides from Saul in caves. And I'm, I'm summarizing the entire book for you. But eventually, what God is doing, what we need to understand, what God is doing in the middle of all this is he's training David to be great. His pain, his struggle, his hardship, it's all training to be a great king. God starts to surround him with people from all over the world to come alongside him. So that eventually when God makes David the king, he has people who will follow him, but not just people from Israel, people from all over the world. And that's important because we get towards the end of David's life and David sees the writing on the clock, right? I'm coming into my last chapter, now what? And God says something to David through a prophet called Nathan. Now, let it be known real quick. God doesn't blend these two categories. There are prophets, there are kings, there are priests. Occasionally, we see kings who do prophetic work, but they're not labeled prophets. It's important because all three of those will later be taken up in one man. But I wanna show you an important, what we call prophetic text. Now, a prophetic text there's two different kinds of prophecy. Prophetic literally just means the word of God, right? I'm teaching you how to read the Bible right now. Prophecy is not always predictive. If God comes to a prophet and says X, Y, and Z, it could just be God telling them X, Y, and Z. It could be prophetic in short term, but it's just a word of the Lord. That's what a prophet does. He communicates the word of the Lord. By the way, anytime I read scripture this morning, in some sense, very similar sense, I'm a prophet today. I'm communicating the word of the Lord to you. But that doesn't mean I'm predicting the future. I don't even dare do that with this Tuesday coming up. But this is important because this is both a prophetic predicting text into the future as well as just a statement of a word from the Lord to David. Take a look. 1 Samuel, oh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. After the king, this is David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, notice Nathan is the prophet, David is the king. Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, this is David talking. He's like, I just built myself a house. I'm king, right? That's what kings do. 
but I'm in this nice house and God, that's what the ark represents. Remember the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Maybe you don't know that's a while ago now, but the ark represented God. Well, God's in a tent, but I'm in a house and David's like, that doesn't feel right to me. So Nathan says in verse three, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Now let's stop and make a point for all of us today who are Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're like, I have no idea what this pastor's talking about, but I'll just make it and then you can catch up to us later. Okay, ready? This point right here, think about this for a minute. When Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, he gathers his disciples and he says, and surely what? I am with you to the very end of the age. Nathan, the prophet, looks at David and says, God is with you, David. Whatever is in your heart, go ahead and do it. And I find this fascinating because the very next verse, God comes to Nathan and says, hang on for a second. Verse four. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house, built me a house of cedar? Okay, so Nathan gives David the best advice he knows. God is with you, king. If you want to build God a house, that sounds awesome. Why does David even want to build God a house? Because all the other nations built God a house. How did Israel end up with a king in the first place? Because all the other nations had a king. They literally say that. Well, they all have a king. And God says, yeah, but you got me. Would you rather have me or them? Uh, They look pretty good, God. Well, what's happening is David's looking at all the other nations and all their gods. And he's saying, well, all their gods have houses. I have a house. Nathan has a house. You've got a house. I've got a house in the middle of the street, but we've got a house. So what are we going to do with it? And God says, wait a minute, I don't need a house. What house are you going to build me that's big enough to contain me? I'll tell you what, there are Psalms and Revelation, it points to the fact that the heavens are the house of God. That seems about the right size to contain God. So David, good luck. How are you going to build a house big enough to contain the power of an infinite God? It's like all the power of the universe in an itty bitty living space. Like, good luck with that. So where are we going with this? Because then God does say something to David. He says this in verse eight. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people. Whose people is it? You gotta get this. It's God's people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." So God begins to speak this message to Nathan. The way you need to understand biblical things here is Nathan's hearing from the Lord and you get kind of a summary and then he goes and he speaks to David and he gives you more of it. Like he gives you more detail. So the next few verses we're about to read are more to that. But in essence, 
What God is saying is yes and no. David, you aren't going to be the one to build me a house. If you want to read more about this, you can also jump over. We're not going to do that right now, but 1 Chronicles chapter 22. So what we see is in 1 Chronicles, it's like a, a history book, and Samuel's telling specifically the story as it intersects Samuel's life and ministries relates to David. So we get overlap, and you can read in 1 Chronicles 22 more of this conversation between God and Nathan and David and the way it unfolds. It gives a little bit more of the story. Let's keep going. Verse 12. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Who's establishing the house? You got to get this, okay? Who's establishing the house? I'll say, I'll say it together. One, two, three. God. God is establishing the house. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. Who's establishing the kingdom? Okay. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Okay. Like 10 of you will get that movie reference. But anyway, you got to get this for everything else that I want to say to you that I could have done in five minutes, but I'm not, because why not? Anyway, verse 14, I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul when I removed who I removed before you. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established for how long? Forever. Yes, forever. Now, this is important. This is what we call the Davidic prophecy. Meaning, somehow, David, you are king. I took the kingdom from Saul. I gave it to you. And of your kingdom, there will be no end. But that didn't come true. David had Solomon. David, by the way, was told by God, if you read some of the other texts on the same thing, you can't build a house for me because you have blood on your hands. You've been involved in too many wars. You've been involved in murder of Bathsheba's husband after you committed adultery. Uriah, you had him murdered. You got blood on your hands. You can't build a house for me because you're not fit to build a house for me. But there is gonna be one after you. By the way, the word Solomon sounds a lot like the word shalom in Hebrew, which means peace. So Solomon comes along and, and David believes this is the one. And, David, and Solomon does eventually build a temple for God, a beautiful temple, a big temple. And the Israelites miss it. In fact, most of your Bible is about the fact that the Israelites missed it. They believe the temple is where God lives. And they miss the fact that you can't contain an infinite, eternal, almighty God inside an itty-bitty living space. You can't do it. So when the temple is torn down, the people are just made. They don't understand it. It makes no sense. That's why they're constantly fighting to rebuild a temple. They desperately want to see a temple. But eventually Solomon has kids and his son ends up dividing the kingdom into two because he's not very smart. And from there, what we get through first and second kings is a succession of kings, both in each part of the divided kingdom now, some are good, some are bad, and it's rise and fall, rise and fall. And it feels we're right back into the book of Judges. And this continues for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Till eventually, really, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he destroys it, and there's really no kings at all after a guy named Zedekiah at all sitting on the throne. So then we go hundreds of years with no king whatsoever until one day. Some angels show up in a field 
And they start talking to some shepherds, not an accident. And they start proclaiming some things to these shepherds. Hey, today a baby's going to be born. And he goes to a woman who, um, she's betrothed to be married, but she's pure. In fact, the Bible says she's a virgin. And it says in Luke chapter one, verse 32, he says to this young girl, he will be great. This baby inside you that you can't even create, right? Like he's gonna be great. And he will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father who? David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, it will never Let that sink in for a second. There is no doubt. When you read Luke and Matthew and they have what we call these genealogies, have you ever read your New Testament? You get to the, and so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and you're like, why is this my Bible study today? Done that? I've done that. I've done it many times. It's because every single one of those so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the author, Luke and Matthew, are being very careful to connect you all the way back to David to say Jesus is the fulfillment of Second Samuel 7. Then they go all the way back to Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Abraham. Then they go all the way back to Adam. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave even to Adam. In other words, when all of humanity, me and you included, were being unfaithful to God and we're trying to take matters into our own hands to control this world and bring it into some semblance that made sense for us. God was sovereignly over top of it all, making sure that all of time and eternity was unfolding right on time. If God could do this for the last thousands and thousands of years, do you think he could do it after this Tuesday? If whoever wins on Tuesday stresses you out, then we need to get you a bigger view of God. Because what happened next is fascinating. We are not told in the book of Mark that Jesus is a king. Luke goes out of his way to say it in the very first chapter. Matthew, same kind of thing. But not Mark. Mark talks about kings of the earth, he talks about one day you'll stand before kings and governors. He talks a lot about kingdom. Kingdom is all over the book of Mark. But the idea of king doesn't come up in the book of Mark until one critical moment. You know what that moment is? Jesus is standing before a guy named Pilate. Pilate is the governor who rules on behalf of the king. And he looks at him and he says, are you king of the Jews? It's the first time it's come up in the book of Mark. And Jesus says, you said it, not me. Which still leaves you going, I'm confused. Except for that, in that chapter, I believe it's Mark 15, I think it is. In that chapter, we then see Jesus called king six times. Now, he's called it by thieves who are hanging behind him. He's called it by soldiers who are mocking him. He's called it by Pilate, and he's called it by a placard put over his head. One scholar actually calls this the parody of the scriptures. And you may be sitting there going, why is that relevant? It's relevant because the irony is the king has come. And Mark is such a masterful writer. He's like hiding this from you as you're reading the book. You're like, well, who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And all of a sudden, Pilate goes, are you him? The soldiers go, are you him? The placard says, this is him. The thieves mock him. This is him, but nobody will say it. And then he dies. What king dies before he's won any battle? 
What good is a king who can't even defeat his enemies, who can't protect his people? His own disciples are now running and scattering for their lives because they've lost all hope. They think the story's over. Do you see the connections to us today? I am amazed at how many people put so much stock in a president who, don't get me wrong, is probably the most powerful person on the face of the planet, except for one. And that one, it's all the power of the universe in an itty-bitty living space. The power of the presidency holds nothing to God. When either of these two candidates and their vice presidents and their cabinets pass away, let's see them raise themselves from the dead. I'm not mocking him because this is both sides or if you're a libertarian or some other third party, great. My point is the power held in the presidency is nothing compared to the power held inside Jesus Christ. And the importance of that for you and the importance of that for me is that we don't lose focus on who is God and what he's doing in the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he defeated his enemies. When he rose from the dead, he took the power that rose him from the dead and he inserted it in all who will follow after him. This is exactly the point that Paul makes in Ephesians when he says the very same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. You, you, you have more power than a president who doesn't believe in God. Now, what do I do with that power? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 18, verse 36. As he's being arrested, Jesus says, my kingdom, it's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, you keep looking for me to come as a king. In fact, when he rides in a donkey and they're laying down these branches, everybody's waiting for him to come as a king. Overthrow Rome! Take what's yours! And he's like, I'm not coming the way you think I'm coming. I'm not showing up the way you think I'm showing up. I'm not doing what you think I'm doing. I'm here to establish a kingdom of love and faithfulness and obedience to my God. I will be a king that Saul failed to be. I will be a king that David failed to be. I will be a king that Solomon failed to be. You go look at their lives, and the best of them is better in me. And the worst of them doesn't exist in me. And that's our king. I'm going to rule. I'm going to reign in righteousness and fairness and justice. It comes with me. But the problem is it's here, and it's not yet here. We're waiting for the king to come back so in the meantime, all the way back to Genesis, he's ruling and he's reigning through you. Through you. In your homes, in your workplaces, in your school, in your community, in this church. 
Every time you partner with God to be like Jesus in the world, you are bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And is it perfect? No. You know why? Because I'm doing it and you're doing it. And we're not perfect, but we have the same power that rose Jesus from the dead living inside of us. So how does all of this impact us this week? I am concerned for all of you, regardless of which side of the political spectrum you fall on, that you're going to lose hope. Regardless, because like if your person doesn't win or your people don't win, then what? So I want to take you back to the same wisdom that Peter gave the people that he was teaching in the New Testament. First Peter chapter two, verse 11. Here's what Peter says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In other words, the reason he's saying this is because you're going to live in this world And the kingdoms that are not of God around you are going to try to lead you away from him. And there's going to be a slew of sinful desires that are going to wage war against your soul. In other words, the real battle, as Paul would say, is not against flesh and blood. The real battle is against the spiritual forces in the unseen realms. That's what's really happening here. What we're really engaged in is a spiritual battle. And Paul, or sorry, Peter here is saying the way we fight that battle, the way we win that battle is through obedience to God. Then he goes on. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. Let me just say real quick. The pagans is literally just a word that means the outsiders. The people who lived outside the city were called the pagans. Now, in ancient Israel, the Israelites were the people of God. So everybody who was a pagan on the outside were not the people of God. But this word doesn't necessarily mean what we mean today. When you call somebody a pagan, either mockingly or jokingly, it's not what it means. The people who are outside of the faith. That's literally what he means. So live such good lives among those who are outside that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, if you are a Christian, I realize some of you may not be. If you're a Christian, you understand that there's another king and he's in heaven and he's reigning and he's ruling from heaven and he's doing it through you. So live such a good life that no matter who the president is, No matter what laws they pass that are good or evil, no matter what your boss says or does, or your principal, no matter what the person on the TV says, or the Facebook video, or whatever that gets shared with you, you live such a good life that other people look at you and say, I do not agree with that person's politics, but I know how I can argue with their life. I'm going to say that one again, because I feel like that was worth your time this morning. I do not agree with that person's politics, but I cannot argue with their life. Let that be said of us. So that when Jesus Christ does return and he sets up his final kingdom, when that day comes, that maybe some of those people that you interact with on a daily basis who do not agree with your politics will be able to praise him because of your life. Peter goes on. And this may be the hardest thing you hear today, okay? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him, that's the emperor, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. In other words, whether your candidate or your group wins, Whatever laws they pass, obey them unless they contradict God. 
That's the only time you're to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm sorry, I can't obey. And at that point, you become Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And says, if it costs me my life, if it costs me my job, that's fine. I cannot obey you and disobey God. But if you're passing laws about things I don't agree with, and it doesn't disobey God, so be it. Now, I get it. That's gray, and that's hard to flesh out, and it takes a lot of work of being on your knees and living out conviction. I get it. And you may not agree with me, or we may not all agree with each other about the best way to apply that. I get it. But each of us will stand before God for our own life. I won't stand before God for what you thought I should do. I'll stand before God for the convictions that I hold about what God told me to do. And at that point, I've got to obey the authorities of the land. God has placed placed the presidents and the police and the governors and the senators and all the people that he's placed in charge. He's placed them in a responsibility to pass laws that are good and right and just. And he will hold them accountable for either doing it or not doing it. And he holds you accountable for doing it or not doing it. Do you see how this works? He's king. He's in heaven, but he's still the king. Then he says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Man, that verse is so powerful. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up to do evil. Well, I'm free. Well, of course you're free but you're still a slave to God because Jesus redeemed you and saved you and he is your king. So even though you can do something, if it doesn't benefit your testimony to the world about who God is, don't do it. I'll make one small, really unpopular application, but I love you, so give me grace, okay? Just just write it off as Matt's crazy if you hate me after this, okay? If the government passes a law about face masks, wear a face mask. It's small, but it has nothing to do with God. Now, we could debate whether they should or not. Whole nother story. But if they do it, live your life in a way that is a testimony to them. And you can disagree with me, all right? Please, send me an email. I'd love to talk about it. I'd love to hear why I'm wrong. I really would, seriously. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor, we would say here, the president. Honor the president. If it ends up being the guy that you think is absolutely wrong or crazy or old or senile or narcissistic or too liberal or too conservative or too evil or too deceptive or too conniving, honor them anyway. Honor doesn't mean blind obedience. Honor means you watch carefully what you write, what you post, what you say, and you get on your knees and you pray for God to lead them and to guide them. God led a man named Nebuchadnezzar one of the most evil men ever on the history of the world. And he led him and he used him. God can use whoever wins this week also. I love the way John Piper said this this week. He wrote a great article about this, uh, this particular vote, whether you agree with Piper or not. He says this, the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time are the people who have the aroma of another world with another king. The people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time are the people who have the aroma of another world with another king. May we stink of another kingdom. With that, I just want to pray over you. What we're going to do is take communion. 
So if you didn't grab one of these little bad boys, you could actually run out real quick, grab one, come back in. And um, this bread and this juice represents our king and his kingdom. We're going to eat and drink the fact that our king has come and will come back again. So what I want you to do, my encouragement to you, during this communion time today, is I want you to pray for unity for our world, and I want you to pray for strength to honor the president or the governors or the senators, the men and the women that God places in authority over us. I want you to pray for God to give you the strength to do that and pray for God to give them the wisdom to lead us well. And then pray that this will not divide our country anymore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a good God. Thank you that Roughly 3,000 years ago, you promised to give us a king who would rule and reign. And then you did that in Jesus Christ. And today, Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven through us. So God, I pray for every man, woman, child in here today, no matter who wins this week, help us, God, to honor you and please you in the ways that we lead. In our homes, and the teams that we coach, and the places of leadership you've placed us, God, help every child in this room to honor their parents. Help every person in this room and at home watching right now to honor our police. God, help our police to rule and to reign with honor and respect, to be honorable. God, help our senators and our governors and our future president and vice president to be led by your spirit on this earth, to have wisdom, to create and enact laws. God, that allow us as Christians to practice our faith, but God, to also bring justice and righteousness on your earth. And God, I pray for every person here who's got some low-level fear and anxiety. God, somehow may the words of this message comfort them. You have been in control through the rises and the falls of every king and every president all over the world through all of history. You aren't going to stop now. Now, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name.